You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. There's not a week that goes by that I do not receive in the mail an advertisement for a church growth seminar. That is because there is not a week that goes by that there is not one such seminar somewhere in this country. It is either for a purpose-driven church, Rick Warren style from Saddleback Community Church down in Southern California, or it's an advertisement from Willow Creek for a Willow Creek cloning seminar, or it's an advertisement for even something local put on by the people who put on the Christian Life Impact Conference, or an advertisement for Leadership Magazine or Charisma Magazine, and I could spend the next 45 minutes just giving to you the advertisements that I receive in the mail of all the promises that if you attend the seminar and implement these principles, you will grow a strong, healthy, vibrant, numerous, numerous church. And those seminars go on every week in churches all across the country. And that is because there is a need for such information in the church and in churches. The concern that people have is how do we grow the church? How do we get numbers? How do we get attendance? How do we get people to come in and to hear the gospel and then to respond to the gospel? Because statistics show that the evangelical Christian church in this country is not growing. Certain denominations are growing, but that's because other denominations are shrinking. And so you have in this country, over the course of the last several decades, a plateau in the number of believers. And the church growth rate is at or below the population growth rate. Christianity and Christians are not gaining tremendous ground in this country. And so everybody wants to know, how do we get numbers up? How do we get people to attend? Just this last week, I ran across in the most recent issue of Modern Reformation magazine this. Walter Hallam, pastor of Abundant Life Christian Center in Lamarck, Texas, attempted to increase attendance during December by offering attendees chances to win a Harley-Davidson motorcycle and a new Chrysler PT Cruiser, which were given away at the New Year's Eve service. Said Pastor Hallam, quote, as a church, we have to use new methods to help take the old gospel and give it to the new world, end quote. That statement is the summation of every conference that you or I could attend on church growth. We have to use new methods to take the old gospel and give it to a new world. As if the gospel is the power of God unto salvation in the first century, but not in the 21st century. But that's what they're taking. We have to find some new method, a raffle, entertainment, drama, whatever it is, to take the old gospel, which was relevant in the first century, but certainly isn't relevant today, and somehow bring it into the church and so we can take that gospel and repackage it reconfigure it, dress it up a little bit, and deliver it to a new world. And you know what they say? I'll tell you what they say at the conferences, because I've read the books, the magazine articles, and I know what's going on, and I know what they're saying. You need to de-Christianize Christianity. That's it. You've got to dramatize the Word. 
You've got to entertain people. You've got to have a PowerPoint presentation. You've got to have everything on overheads. You've got to have loud, overbearing music and music that stays away from all of these um, deep words like wretch. And you have to avoid in your messages using any kind of theological words and avoid big words like sin. You don't want to talk about sin. And you don't want to talk about the cross. And you have to avoid offending people. And so we have to take Christianity, and because we live in a consumer-driven society, we have to repackage it in order that the consumer will buy the product or want the product. And so what we do is we take the message, we strip the message of its message, and then we deliver it to people and expect them to glom onto it. And it's no wonder it's not working. It's no wonder the church isn't growing. It's no wonder that people are not being saved and the culture thinks Christians are nothing but bad used car salesmen trying to desperately hawk a product that they want to get rid of and they're willing to say anything or do anything in order to get people to buy their product. That's what's going on in the modern day church. That's what goes on in the modern day seminars. And in your preaching, you should keep it simple and short. You should keep it easy and short. You should keep it non-theological and short. You should keep it topical and short. Did I mention you should keep it short? That's the modern philosophy of preaching. And you stay away from exposition. You don't quote Scripture. And if you do quote Scripture, you put it on an overhead so people don't have to bring their Bibles. So you put it up on an overhead and use the expanded, amplified, extended, uh, first grade, paraphrased, easy to understand paraphrase of the Bible so that the average stupid individual in the pew can understand it. It's the mentality of these people repackaging Christianity. Is there a better way? You know, what's going on in our day is not new. Charles Spurgeon, over a hundred years ago, he said this, everywhere, quote, everywhere there is apathy. Nobody cares whether that which is preached is true or false. A sermon is a sermon, whatever the topic, only the shorter it is, the better. End quote. That's what Spurgeon said. A sermon is a sermon. Doesn't matter what the topic is, just keep it short. That was a hundred years ago in England. He was lamenting the course that the church of his day was taking. He said, everywhere there's apathy. And nobody cares whether what is preached is true, just as long as it's short, easy to understand, and can get me out in time to go fishing. That's all that people care about in a consumer-driven society. I was just talking this last week with a friend who was invited some years back to uh, do a youth pastor's conference on youth ministry and discipleship. So they called it a a youth pastor's program or a a, a teen discipleship program. And he had two 45-minute segments and a 30-minute break in between. So for the first 45 minutes, this was in the Portland area, he went into the place and there was about 50 youth ministers gathered there together in this place. And they had come to hear him talk and present his discipleship program. And so he started to go through what his program is. You get them into a Bible study. You teach them the Word. You hold them accountable. You have them take sermon notes. You make them attend church. You you try and disciple them to pray and to read the Bible and to understand the Bible and go to a, a Bible study and become accountable. And so for the first 45 minutes, he was drilling this into these people. They had a 30-minute break. The next 45 minutes was supposed to be for a question-and-answer time. 
So everybody got back together, these 50 youth pastors, and he got up front, and first question out of the box, one of the youth pastors raised his hand. He said, it sounds to me what you're saying is what we need to do is teach the Bible to these teens and then hold them accountable to obey it. He said, bingo. That's it. So I spent 45 minutes telling you. Forty youth pastors got up and walked out. That was seven years ago, friends, and it's worse today than it was seven years ago. People don't want to hear that. Everybody wants to be part of the biggest, the best, the greatest, and numbers seem to matter to people more than what is taught and how it's taught. You know what the average size of the average church in America is? Would you say that it's smaller or larger than what you see gathered here today? Have a show of hands. How many of you think that the average church attendance today in this country, this morning, is smaller than what you see here? If you think it's smaller, raise your hand. A few, about a third. How many of you think that the average church attendance is larger than what you see here today? Raise your hand. you know what the average is? Ninety people. Ninety people. That's what you see here today. Now, if you listen to modern people lament the condition of the church, you know what they'll tell you? If you don't have a church of a thousand people, God's not blessing it. And you've got to do something to get your numbers up. That's what they say. You've got to do something. But what they won't do is what the apostles did. Anything but that. That's what's so ironic. The condition of the church. You've got to do something. Just don't do what Peter did. Because Peter did everything wrong. Only 2%, only 2% of the churches in this country have an attendance of over 1,000. Did you know that? Only 2% of the churches in this country have weekly attendance of over 1,000. Yet if you listen to people, you'd say that was the norm. They thought that was the norm. The norm is 90. The norm is this. This is average. You're just an average group of people, an average-sized group of people. You're, you're not heavy. You're not light on the numbers. This is what you see average-wise across the country. Yet you'd never know it with the way people press the modern church growth philosophy. You know what I don't want to know? I don't want to know what the latest fad is. I don't want to know what book everybody's reading. I don't want to know what principles everybody's applying. I don't want to know what music everybody's singing. I don't want to know what topics everybody's preaching on. I don't want to know what the latest 40-day, 50-day, 90-day fad is that's going through the churches. What I want to know is what did the apostles do? What did the apostles lay down for us? And what does Scripture reveal to us is the means and the way that God blesses the church when they do it. That's what I want to know. Do you want to know that? I want to know that. What is it that Paul did? What is it that Peter did? What did those 12, those 13 men do that changed the world in the first century? And if we can get a handle on that and return to that, I would submit to you that we'd be in a lot better shakes today as a church, nationally speaking. So turn to Acts chapter 2 because that's where we get the answers to those questions. Acts chapter 2. This falls right on the heels of Peter's sermon. He has just preached the very first Christian sermon and we looked at it the last two weeks. The first week we looked at how Peter explained the phenomena of tongues. He quoted the prophet Joel and he said, what you're seeing today in the pouring out of the Spirit of God is what Joel prophesied. It's what the Father promised. It's what Jesus promised. This is the fulfillment of that promise that God was going to pour out His Spirit. And then Peter goes into the death of Christ and how that was part of the plan of God, but yet these people were responsible for that themselves. 
And he lays the blame right at their feet. And then he goes on and gives an exposition of Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 in telling how Christ had been risen from the grave and God had exalted Him to the right hand of His power and of His throne and that because of that, He was going to make a footstool for Christ's feet out of all of His enemies. And now all of these Jews who are standing there on the day of Pentecost, they have heard Peter's Word. He has preached to them the Old Testament text. And there is a response. And we're going to notice two things. First, the reaction to Peter's message. And then second, the results of Peter's message. Look at the reaction in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. I want you to stop for a second there. And I want you to just observe something with me. It's a real simple observation. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. What did they hear? Drama? Peter stand up on the day of Pentecost and start assigning roles to the disciples. Okay, Matthias, you play Judas. Peter, uh, Peter, I'm going to play Jesus as Peter. And Matthew, you play uh, Pontius Pilate. And we'll dramatize the word for these people. No, it doesn't call on Matthias or Andrew to get up and sing the word to these people. What does Peter do? Preaches. Mistake number one. You don't do that. And you don't preach a long sermon beginning in verse 17 and, or verse 14 and going all the way to the end of verse 36. Peter, keep it short. But Peter gets up and he preaches. And he doesn't preach a topical message. Peter does not give to them three hints to have a better marriage or four ways to be successful in business or three things to do to raise godly kids. He doesn't do any of that. You know what Peter does? Peter does what is into modern day church anathema. He stands up and he quotes an Old Testament passage and he gives an exposition, an explanation of that Old Testament passage and then applies it to the hearts of his hearers. And then he does the same thing in Psalm 16 again, quotes an Old Testament passage, gives an explanation of it, an exposition of it, and applies it to the hearts of his hearers. And I hate to be redundant, folks, but he does it a third time. Psalm 110 gets up and he quotes an Old Testament passage, gives an exposition of the Old Testament passage, an explanation of it, and then applies it to the hearts of the hearers. It is what we call expository preaching. You take a passage or passages of Scripture that become the outline and the substance and the full brunt of what you say so that you're not talking about a topic. You're not pulling together all of man's wisdom on a subject. What Peter does is he goes right to the Scriptures. He gives the passage and he explains the passage and then he applies it to the hearts of his hearers. And he does that on three very difficult texts of the Old Testament. He doesn't pick something easy. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. doesn't do that. He picks what could have been and possibly was the three of the most difficult passages from the Old Testament that he could have preached on. And that was the substance of his message that day. And he just preaches the Word. And what happened? They're pierced to the heart. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. And how will they hear without a preacher, Paul says? What is it that creates faith within the proclamation of the Word of God. You've been born again not of a corruptible seed, but an imperishable seed, Peter says. It's the living and abiding Word of God, and this is the Word that was preached to you. They're pierced to the heart because the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. No drama can do that. No song can do that. No worship service can do that. There's only one thing that can pierce to the very heart of a man and a woman. And that's the Word of God as it is preached. 
Not just as it is read, because there is a power in the preached Word that's not there in the, in the written Word. But it is the Word as it is proclaimed and explained that the Spirit of God uses to stab. And that's what the word pierced means. It means a thrust. And it intones something that is quick and sharp. And as they stood there and they heard the Old Testament preached, and they saw how it applied to their lives, and Peter laid the application right at their feet, there was suddenly this inward conviction, a contrition that can only come when the Word is used. And anybody who thinks that you can draw people in, entertain them, and get them saved when you minimize the proclamation of the Word is deceiving themselves and deceiving whole churches and whole denominations. It does not happen that way. It cannot happen that way. You cannot get anyone saved apart from the Word. It's the Word that does that. And we have lost so much confidence in the Word that we have pushed it aside and exchanged it for all of these methods that we brought into the church. And Peter just stands up and he just preaches it as it is. I don't think he expected to get the results that he did, but he stands up and he just proclaims it. This is the fact. This is the truth. And here it is. Do with it what you want. This is what the Scriptures say. And he indicted them for their sin. And by the way, any presentation of the Gospel has to come with it an indictment for their sin. You can't bring people in or be talking to somebody and minimize their sin. You can't do that. You can't try and sidestep their sin or make them feel good about their sin or call their sin something else. I was in one of these seeker-sensitive church services where they didn't use the term sin. It was the bad things we have done. Bad things we have done. That feels good. Well, they'll pet your back all the way to hell telling you about the bad things that you've done. It's sin. And you cannot present the Gospel unless you bring an indictment against a man or a woman for their rebellion and their sin. And you got to lay it right at their feet. That's what Peter did to these people. He said, this Jesus whom you crucified, you delivered Him over to godless men and they hung Him on a cross. You are responsible for His crucifixion. Lays it right at their feet. Any presentation has to do that. Any presentation of the Gospel has to have two things. It has to have the Word involved and it has to have an indictment for their sin. So what happens? Well, they're pierced to their heart and then look what Peter says at the end of verse 37. They say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? That's not a flippant response. They're not saying, well, hey, what do you want us to do about it? They're not saying that. This is, a, this is out of the abundance of their pierced heart. Their mouth is speaking. They are confronted with their sin. They are contrite. They are humbled. They are pierced to the heart. And they say, well, what shall we do then? We've crucified our Messiah. What, what is there for us to do? They want to do something. So Peter says to them, verse 38, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now verse 38. Before we get into it, I'm going to tell you right at the surface, verse 38 has become a mill for all kinds of doctrinal controversy. It has become a stumbling block for people that they cannot get over. It has become the source of controversy, even division within churches because there's a misunderstanding of what Peter is saying. And there are churches like the Boston Church of Christ movement, the Church of Christ movement, and the Christian church denomination that teach that a man must be baptized in order to be saved. And one of the texts that they use is Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Look what Peter says. Repent 
and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And it seems to be saying that what, what Peter seems to be saying is you need to repent and you need to be baptized in order for your sins to be forgiven. And so they use that verse to say that baptism is necessary for salvation. We're going to get to that in a second in due time, but I want you to notice the word repent first. Repent. The word repent means to think after or to think afterwards. That's what the word literally means. It has the idea of coming to a change of mind so that you think differently after a point than you did before a point. So you've had your heart and your mind changed. So to repent is to have a change of mind. It is to have a change of heart. And the word carries with it the idea of looking at the past way that you thought and acted and feeling sorrow over it. Because you recognize in it some flaw, some evil, some wickedness, some folly, some sin. And so there is with the idea of repentance, not only just I think differently and I feel differently about this, but the idea of repentance is I have had a changed heart and a changed mind and I grieve over how I used to think and behave. That's repentance. Now let me tell you what repentance is not before I tell you what repentance is. Is. Let me illustrate by telling you three things that repentance is not. Number one, repentance is not feeling terrorized over sin. It's not feeling terrorized over sin. An individual may feel terror over their sin because they have been caught. And so there's the consequences. And, and they don't like the consequences and so they're scared of the consequences. They're scared of what people think and so they feel bad about that. They feel bad not because they've sinned but because they've got caught sinning. That's not repentance. Repentance is not just feeling a terror over your sin, some anguish over your sin. That's not necessarily repentance. It's one thing to be a terrorized sinner. It's another thing to be a repentant sinner. Those are two different things. You can be a terrorized sinner and just feel scared about the future consequences or what have you of your sin. It's another thing to be repentant. So repentance is not just terror over sin. Second, repentance is not just a resolve to not sin. Have you ever ran across somebody who said, God, if you just get me out of this, I'll never do X, Y, and Z again. Have you ever had anybody say that? Lord, you get me out of jail. Lord, you get me through this court setting and I will never do X, Y, and Z again. I'm not going to do it. I resolve to not do it. That is not repentance. Because a person may resolve to stop sinning because of the circumstances that they feel themselves in. They feel the pain of their sin and so they resolve to never do that again. Why? Not because sin is sinful, but because sin is painful. And so that causes them to resolve to not sin anymore. I'm not going to do that. But it has nothing to do with the fact that sin is sinful and they hate sin. But they really hated the consequences of their sin. And so they say, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to resolve to not sin because it's too uncomfortable. Or a man may resolve to not sin because it's not profitable to sin. I'm not going to go smoke anymore because it's unhealthy for me. I may die of cancer. I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z because it's not profitable for me to do that. And that's not repentance. That comes from self-love, self-preservation, self-interest. So just stopping sinning or resolving to not sin anymore is not necessarily repentance. Third, repentance is not terror over sin. It's not resolving not to sin. And repentance is not stopping sin. To simply cease sinning is not repentance. Because a man may stop sinning, but never have a change of heart. A man may give up his sin only to keep certain others. Have you ever seen anybody do that? 
They stop doing X, Y, and Z, but they're going to keep on doing A, B, and C quietly. A man may exchange one sin for another. He trades one addiction for another addiction. You see, man in an unsaved, unregenerate, ungraced state does not give up his sin. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, 1660s, said, A man so loves his sin that he would rather part with a child than with a lust. Isn't that powerful? Have you ever seen a man who so loves his sin that he will allow his job to cease? He will lose one of his children. He will allow his marriage to crumble. All so he can hold on to his lust. And a man may exchange sins and yet the heart remain unchanged. So it's not just feeling terror over sin. It's not, it's not resolving not to sin and it's not uh, stopping sin. You know what repentance is? Repentance is the grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have just the visible reformation. You cannot have somebody who will just give up sin, somebody who will resolve to not sin, or even somebody who trembles over their sin. There must be something with it. There must be an inward humbling. Repentance is the grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. So the inward humbling, which is a work of God's Spirit, will accomplish the outward reformation. The inward humbling will be accompanied by a terror over sin. A hatred for sin. Not because it is painful, not because of its consequences, and not because of what might happen. But repentance is an individual coming to the point of saying, sin is sinful, and I hate it because it is an affront to a holy God. That's the change of mind and the change of heart that repentance is. That's what Peter is asking these people to do. But here's a catch. Well, catch this. Scripture teaches that repentance is a gift of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, Paul said to Timothy that we are to uh, correct those who are in opposition to the truth if perhaps God may grant them repentance. Acts chapter 5, verse 31, Peter said, He, speaking of Christ, is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as Prince and Savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 11.18 Acts 11, When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. You see, repentance is a work of the Spirit of God. It's not something that you and I do. It's something that God grants. It's something that must be a work of the Spirit of God. And God does not grant repentance to all people, or all people would repent. It's a work of the Spirit of God. Yet... We're commanded to repent. Acts 2.38. So Peter says, repent. You need to turn from your sins. And any presentation of the Gospel will say that. You need to repent of your sins. Turn from your sins. Have a change of heart. Have a change of mind. Yet we understand that that in itself is the work of God. Paul is the one who said repentance is a gift from God. It's something that God grants to those who are in error so that they may come to an understanding of the truth. Yet it was Paul who said on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, God commands all men everywhere to what? Repent. Commanded to repent. But that is the work of God. It's the grace of God's Spirit. 
It's something that God grants. But it's something we're commanded to do. Now, I'll leave that to you and your dinner table to flesh out how that's supposed to happen. But that's the way it is. The second thing Peter says, not only repent, but be baptized. Here's the problem. If you're going to take this verse to say that Peter is adding baptism to belief as a requirement for salvation, then you're going to find yourself in conflict with all the rest of the New Testament. All the rest of the New Testament. Scripture teaches that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, without the addition of anything else. Whether it be circumcision, baptism, church attendance, tithing, you name it, whatever it is that you call upon men to do while they believe for salvation is a distortion and an adding to and a manipulation of the gospel. And it's no gospel at all. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and that's it. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. And if you think that that's what Peter's saying here, then you find Peter and yourself in conflict with all the rest of the New Testament. Paul, when he was discussing uh, the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said that this is the gospel that I delivered to you, that Christ was died for sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. doesn't mention baptism at all. And that's where Paul defines what the gospel is. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. doesn't mention baptism. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said, I'm thankful that I didn't baptize any of you Corinthians, except Stephanus, and he names a couple of other ones. He said, because Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And Paul didn't even consider baptism as part of his ministry. He hardly ever did that. That was He was just there to preach and to present the gospel. And he baptized just only a few people in Corinth. Acts chapter 16, when Paul was asked by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Paul said what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So is there a way of understanding what Peter's saying here that does not conflict with the rest of Scripture? Certainly there is. Peter says, repent and let each one of you be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. The key word is in the word for. Ace is the Greek word. little preposition. And it can mean for. It can also mean very naturally, and is used this way in the New Testament. It can also mean because of. And it can mean on the occasion of. It's used that way in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, where Jesus said, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment... And they will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. At is translation of the word ace. But if we translated it for, they repented for the preaching of Jonah, that doesn't make much sense. Why? Because Jesus is using the word because of. They repented because of the preaching of Jonah. uses the same word that Peter uses in Acts chapter 2. They repented at the occasion of the preaching of Jonah. uses the same word as he does in Acts chapter 2. And that's how Peter means it here. We might translate it this way. Repent for the forgiveness of sins and on the occasion of or because of your forgiveness, let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the idea. And Peter just kind of puts it all together. Repent for the forgiveness of sins because it's that which brings forgiveness, not baptism. And let each of one of you, because of your forgiveness of sins, be baptized. In the name of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter's saying. And that's all Peter means. But the question, why does Peter even bring it up? Right? Why confuse 2,000 years worth of Christians by bringing up baptism at all in the first sermon? Why not just leave it out of there and, and deal with these people individually afterwards? There's a very important reason why Peter brings it up, and it's because of who he's talking to. Who is he preaching to? Jews. Just any Jews? 
Did this Jew average a Jew? No. These were a unique set of Jews, right? What were they responsible for? Ah, rejecting the Messiah. Crucifying the Messiah. They masterminded His death. They turned Him over to the Romans. They had Him crucified and hung on a cross. These are the ones who have spit on Him, rejected Him, had Him beaten, and sat back and watched His execution. They've publicly, viciously, personally rejected Him. So why does Peter add baptism here and say, you need to believe and repent, but you need to be baptized as well? You know why he does that? What is baptism? It is a public expression of an inward commitment. It's a public demonstration of an inward reality that an individual has been identified with Christ. So Peter, all he's asking for these Jews, and he's not making coming to Christ easy for them at all. He's saying, I want you to be baptized, which in that culture for them, you want us to be publicly identified with this Messiah that we've rejected? That would cost them everything. That would cost them, even put them in physical danger to do that. And so Peter's saying, it's not enough just to say, oh, I'm sorry, go on with life. That's not it. You must not only repent of your sins and be grieved over them, but Peter says, I want you to publicly, in front of all of these people, confess and repent and demonstrate your turning from your sin and embracing the Savior by being publicly, demonstrably identified with the very one that you have rejected. And so Peter throws up this hurdle. That does away with all the false converts. So much for easy believism. He doesn't just say, look, say sorry to God for all the bad things you did. Everything will be okay. He doesn't say that, does he? He says you need to repent because you've sinned. And then I want you to publicly identify yourself with the one that you've rejected. That's why he puts baptism there. And what will happen for them? Look what Peter says in the end of verse 38 and 39. For this promise, they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's not the gift of tongues. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is the gift. Peter's not saying if you believe, everybody will speak in tongues. It's not a gift. You can't guarantee somebody that they're going to get a certain spiritual gift when they believe on Christ. This is not the gift of tongues. Verse 39. The promise, that's the Holy Spirit... The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. There's no reason to think that this is the pouring out of the Spirit and the reception of the Spirit is just for the twelve apostles or just for the hundred and twenty or just for the Jews or just for this generation. Peter says it's for you. It's not just for us. It's for you. It's for your children, your descendants. And it's not just for this nation. It's for people who are afar off. In every country, in every land, this is the promise. Repent and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's God's promise. You'll receive salvation if you turn from your sins and believe on Christ. You receive the gift of the Spirit of God. That's God's promise to you. Look at the end of verse 39. As many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. Now, did you choke over verse 23 a couple weeks ago when we went through that? Was verse 23 hard for you to get down, swallow? Caused you a little gastrointestinal difficulty when we swallowed that one? Verse 23, which says, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you hung to a cross and crucified Him. Was that difficult for you to swallow? The sovereignty of God, that God did it, God planned it, it was all His plan, that He's completely sovereign, yet man is responsible for that? Now, if, if that phrase in verse 23 caused you some difficulty, you're going to lose sleep for weeks over the end of verse 39. Who is the promise given to? All those whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. 
The promise is given to all those whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Who is it that God calls to himself? You know what? Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that beautiful harmony or what? Who is it that calls out to the Lord and is saved? All those whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The Spirit is not given to everybody indiscriminately. It's not given to believers and unbelievers. Who is it given to? Only believers. How does Peter characterize and classify and describe believers? All those whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. None others. The Spirit is not given to people whom the Lord does not call to Himself. Yet Peter can, in all honesty and sincerity, say, you need to call on the name of the Lord your God, verse 21 of chapter 2, and you'll be saved. But Peter knows nobody will call on the name of the Lord their God and be saved unless the Lord our God calls them to Himself. And that's what's necessary. The Spirit is given to who? All men indiscriminately? No. To as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. There's two types of call in Scriptures. There is the vocal, external, audible call whereby men are challenged to repent, to trust Christ, and to believe on Him for salvation. You preach the gospel and the call goes out. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Trust in Him and He will save you from your sins. That is the universal general call. But there is a very specific call that is given to some, not to all, of that inward calling where God calls some men to Himself. Not all people are called in that way. The elect are called in that way. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Listen to this. All whom the Lord predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. That's a special call. That's when the sheep hear His voice and they come to Him. That is when men are drawn to the Savior. That's why Jesus said, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. Because there is that inward call. Peter says, All of you need to repent, trust Christ, And this is the promise for as many of you as God will call to Himself. Not all of them were called that day. Some of them weren't. And we see that as we look at the results of Peter's sermon. That's the response to Peter's sermon. That's most of the passage. The results are in verse 41. I don't want you to look there right now. Hold on a second. got to understand, Peter has done everything wrong. He's done absolutely everything wrong. He's preached an expository message. Anathema. You don't do that, Peter. Not only that, but he has preached an expository message and he quoted Scripture. Not a first century amplified, extended, uh, uh, an expanded translation that's dumbed down for a first grade reader. He hasn't done that. He's quoted straight out of the Septuagint, the common language of their day. He's quoted that Bible verse and he's used Scripture in his message. That's something you never want to do. Not only that, but Peter has chosen the three most difficult passages from the Old Testament he could have preached on. Nothing easy. And not only that, but Peter's brought up some very tough subjects. The sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man, and he's told them, not all of you are called to the Lord. Now that's a big stumbling block for Jews who think that just because they were born, they have a special relationship with God. But Peter says, not all of you are called to the Lord our God. As many as come, you will receive. You won't cast any out. Not all of you are called. You don't enjoy this special relationship just because of who you are. Then he throws out this this hurdle, baptism, makes it difficult to believe. Not easy, difficult. And then there's no altar call. Do you notice that? 
Peter doesn't ask the accompanist to play through just as I am 15 times and beg people to come forward. If you just come down out of the stadiums, come down up here front. We got counselors and new believers packets for you off to the side here. We'll bring you apart into this room and have you pray. No altar call here. How can you get saved without an altar call? Huh? How can anyone get saved without an altar call? Peter doesn't do that. Peter has done everything wrong. How pathetic the results are going to be from such a ministry, right? Verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now, friends, can you imagine how many people would have got saved if Peter had attended a modern-day church growth seminar? I mean, just a pathetic 3,000 people get saved if he'd only known how to do this. Guess how many people could have gotten saved that day? I'm joking, right? Yeah, I'm joking. 3,000 people got saved. As many as received his word that day were baptized, and God reached down, and in his sovereignty by his grace, he called 3,000 people to himself. And that is the pattern throughout the book of Acts. You've just seen started what will continue through the rest of this book. Men who are faithful to do what God calls them to do, and God by his grace reaches down and begins to bless that work. Let me sort of crystallize this by just saying, giving you two statements. First of all, the growth of the church is God's work, not ours. It's his bride. He died for it. He owns it. It's his people. It's his church. You and I do not own it. We cannot cajole, manipulate, woo, draw, uh, press, pry people into the kingdom. That's not our work. It's not our job to try and convince people to get saved or to make it easy or to repackage the message. It's not our job to come up with some new method to draw people in that see if God blesses it. That's not our job. The growth of the church is the Lord's work and He's sovereign in it. And the Lord will add to His church as He sees fit. And there's nothing that you and I can do that will add people to that number or take people away from that number. Because it's Christ's church. And when we get to heaven, there will not be one living stone that is missing. And not one living stone that is extra. We'll all be there. There'll be a perfect bride. It's His work, not ours. Second, I want you to learn this and observe this. God blesses His work when it's done His way. God blesses His work when it's done His way. The message is the message is the message. And that's it. And it is as relevant and as powerful in 21st century as it was in the 1st century without repackaging it for a consumer-driven society. It is His message. It is His work. When we do His work His way, look what happens. 3,000 people got saved. Now, listen, numbers are not always a sign of God's blessing. And just because there's 3,000 people that get saved doesn't mean that God is necessarily in it. The issue is not the number. The issue is... How was the work of God done? That's the issue. You may preach and proclaim the gospel and have 3,000 people get saved. Great. As long as you have done it God's way and been biblical in it, or you may preach and be biblical and only three get saved or none get saved. That's really not the issue. Because God is not going to hold us accountable for how many people we change. God is going to hold us accountable for doing two things. What He asked us to do, in the way that He asks us to do it. And so we commit ourselves to doing God's work, God's way, and it will never, ever, ever lack God's blessing. Can you agree with me on that? And may we never, ever be tempted to take man's way and bring it into the church and think this can work a little bit better 
than what God has blessed and ordained and commanded us to do. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would work in our hearts and in our minds to begin to crystallize for us and harden in our hearts a biblical sense of what our mission is and what we've been called to. We pray that you would open our eyes to what Peter has done here and to once again place our confidence in doing ministry your way and to place our confidence in your word, which has the power to change lives, to sanctify your people, and to equip us for works of service. And so we love your word. We thank you for your word. And we do pray, God, that as it is taught and preached and honored and loved and obeyed, that you would bless it in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, and in this church, all for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.